Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Hope you're doing well. It's good to be worshiping with you today. My name is Travis. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us. And uh, I would love a chance just to let you know how much we appreciate you being here, taking time out of your day to come and visit with us. So we have a free gift that we'd love to put in your hands uh, today before you leave. So you don't mind stopping by our, our welcome table right out there in the hallway. We have a free gift we'd love to give you. And then we also have this, this little welcome card, just a way for me to, to get some information from you so that I can reach out and say thank you for your visit. So if you do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And uh, church, we are going to continue in our series, walking verse by verse through the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles... You can go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter two. We're going to be in in verses one through 13 today. So this is our our third week in the Ruth series. We we walked through the last couple of weeks, chapter one. And and last week, what we saw is is Ruth and Naomi are our two main characters. They they finally get back to Naomi's homeland in Bethlehem. And and really the end of chapter one zooms in on Ruth and Naomi's grief and pain and loss. And Naomi especially is walking through this, this awful season of grief. If you remember the beginning of Ruth starts out with tragedy, starts out with, with, with horrible tragedy, right? Naomi and her husband and their two boys have to leave their homeland in Bethlehem and go over to the neighboring country of Moab, which was an enemy country of Israel. They have to leave their homeland because of this, this horrible famine that was going on in Bethlehem at the time. So they, they leave their homeland, they get to Moab, and Naomi's husband dies. And then 10 years later, her, her two sons die. And in chapter one, uh, Naomi makes the journey back to her homeland in Bethlehem, and, and Ruth commits herself to go with Naomi. But Naomi comes back a different person, right? The, the tragedy and the grief and the loss that she's experienced has changed her. Remember last week, she comes into Bethlehem and she's like, don't call me Naomi anymore, right? Naomi, her name means sweet and pleasant. She's like, don't call me that anymore because I'm no longer sweet and pleasant. Call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. She has, uh, has allowed herself to get into this, this state of bitterness and anger and pain because of her loss. And she's blaming it all on God. So that's where we leave chapter one. But, but if you remember at the very end of chapter one, the last verse of chapter one tells us something very interesting. It tells us something, it seems like this is insignificant detail, right? It tells us that they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, which typically, I mean, I don't know about you, but we read that and, and to me initially, that's like, okay, cool. Yeah, thanks. Thanks narrator for that insignificant detail. Barley harvest, cool, great. All right, on to chapter two now, moving on. But that is very significant because it, it is because of the barley harvest that Ruth and Naomi's life is gonna change forever. I don't know if you've had this in your life. I'm sure you had. It can be several moments, right? These, these moments in life that we look back and we're like, oh yeah, that choice right there, man, that changed my life forever. Like that changed everything for me. Maybe it was when, when you met your spouse, right? Those of you that are married, you're like, you locked eyes with your spouse. You're like, oh, that's, that's the person I'm going to marry. That's who I'm going to be with. That, that did not happen for me. When Kendra and I first met, she wanted nothing to do with me. I know that's surprising, right? It surprised me as much as it surprises you right now. That's how shocked I was. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't want nothing to do with me. So that, that was not the moment. But later on, you know, I finally convinced her, talked her into to being interested in me. And, and, you know, the rest is history from there. But we had these moments, whether it's, it's a decision, it's a new job that you took or a new position within a job, or maybe it was a move, right? Maybe it was like, man, we're picking up our family. We're moving to this place, moving states or moving wherever. And it's like, man, that moment, we look back, man, that moment changed my life forever. We all have these moments that we can look back and go, man, that, that just turned everything 
for me and my family or me and my spouse or, or our kids. Well, that's what's going on in Ruth here. And that's why the end of chapter one is, is so important for us to, to remember as we continue on. Because Ruth, is, again, the chapter, first chapter is filled with such pain and tragedy. And here at the end with the barley harvest, God is giving us just a, a slightest bit of hope in the midst of pain and tragedy. So this moment with the barley harvest is going to change everything. So again, if you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter two, first 13 verse, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on our table that we'd love to give you as our gift to you. And as always, uh, the verses will be right here on the screen as we go through this. So we're going to walk through the first 13, cha- first 13 verses here pretty slowly because there's some, some important things happening that I want to make sure we're aware of and on the same page with. So we're going to walk through these, these verses a little slowly. So bear with me. Ruth chapter two, starting in verse one, it says this. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabitess, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Okay, let's stop there because there's some important things happening in these first three verses that again, I wanna make sure we're, we're, we're dialed into. So right away, we're introduced to a new character. Right away, we're told at the beginning of chapter two, there's this guy who's from Elimelech, that's, that's Naomi's husband, Elimelech's family. So, so he's from the, the family of Na- Naomi's husband, their relatives, and his name is Boaz. So this is a big deal, right? In any kind of you know, writing, literature, whatever, the author, when they introduce a new character like this, we should be paying attention. Like, this is a big deal. Like, okay, Boaz, he's going to be an important figure. All right, so this is a big deal. So Boaz arrives on the scene. And, and not only are we told that he's a relative of Naomi, we're told two important things here about who Boaz is. The first thing is it says that he's a prominent man. He's a prominent man. That, that Hebrew word for prominent is the Hebrew word gabor. And that word can be translated in a few different ways. A lot of times it's translated as, as mighty or powerful. And it's said of these military leaders in the Old Testament, instead of uh, this of, of Gideon in the book of Judges. We know Gideon was this military leader for the nation of Israel. So it could be the, these military leaders, a hero is another way that it can be translated, warrior, something like that. So maybe Boaz was a military leader. Right? Remember, this is during the time of the judges. And when we look back at the book of Judges, we see, man, there's just like constant wars and battles and crazy things happening. So maybe he was this military leader. It also could be translated, I think it's interesting. It could also be translated manly. Manly, like Boaz is, is a man's man. Like that's basically what Gabor is saying. Like he's a manly dude. I don't know, maybe he goes camping or hunting or can grow a beard, which I can't do. So I don't know. I don't know what that means, but, but he, he's a manly guy. It also tells us, this word also tells us that, that he was a, a leader in the community which as we continue on in the book of Ruth, we're definitely going to see that play out. Boaz has influence in this community. So he's a, he's a manly dude, influence in the community, but it also more importantly tells us that he, he is a man of noble character. That's the second thing that we're told about Boaz. He's a man of noble character. That's the Hebrew word hail. Now it could be translated wealthy, it could just mean that he's got a lot of money, which we know from this passage that Boaz owns land. So it's certainly possible that he was a wealthy person in this community. But it's also a word that speaks to character, which is why here in the CSB, it translates it noble character. The same word, it's interesting, we'll get to this in chapter three, but the same word, Boaz uses the same word to describe Ruth in Ruth chapter three, verse 11. 
And we know that Ruth is not somebody who's wealthy, right? She's the exact opposite of wealthy. So this word speaks to more than just, just wealth. I think it points more to, to wealth of character, who you are as a person. And that's what we're going to see about Boaz is he was a man of noble character. Men, I, I just want to make a point here real quick. Men, pay attention to this because this, this matters, right? We, we tend to describe and define who we are as a man with that first word, prominent, Gabor. We want to be a manly man, right? Like this is this hero's military leg. That's how the world typically defines a man. Who are you on the outside? What is your performance? Who are you? What have you done? That's what defines us as a man according to culture. But, but that second word is far more important for us. If we want to be a godly man, that second word matters. We are to be a man of godly and noble character. So I want you to pay attention, men, as we, as we walk through the rest of Ruth. I mean, so often Ruth can just be this, this love story, right? And, and, and a bunch of, you know, women's Bible studies on the book of, of Ruth. And guys can probably be like, oh, Ruth, yeah, whatever. Just this, this rom-com in the Old Testament. No, there's so much more than just that, right? There's so much more. And Boaz, men, pay attention to Boaz in these next uh, three chapters. Pay attention to who he is and how he treats people, how he responds, how he responds to God. All this kind of, it teaches us what it looks like to be a man of godly character. So pay attention to that. All right, let's, let's keep going here. Verse two, verse two, we find something interesting. What does Ruth say here? Verse two, Ruth the Moabite has asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered, go ahead, my daughter. So what's going on here? What is that referring to? Maybe in some of your translations, instead of saying gather fallen grain, it just uses the word glean. Just uses the word glean. This is pointing to a practice in the Old Testament, in ancient Israel, that during the harvest time, people would would come through the harvest and and glean, which means to, to gather up the fallen and left behind grain. So Naomi or Ruth is asking, hey, Naomi, can I go into these fields and gather grain? Why was she doing that? Well, that's the only way they're going to get fed. That's the only way they're going to get food. And Naomi, man, she's just like, I think just so overcome with depression. She's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't even care about food anymore. Whatever. Yeah, Ruth, just, yeah, sure. Just go do your thing, right? Like, she's just kind of just whatever. So she goes, and, and, and here's what, what harvest time would look like. Here's why this, this matters. So what's going on here with the gleaning, with the gathering of the falling grain. So during harvest time, like it was here, the barley harvest, what would happen is, is a landowner like Boaz would have hired hands. So, so basically servants, employees, whoever it was. And the first group that would go through was the men. And the, the hired men would go through, they'd grab these stalks of grain and they'd cut them down with a sickle and they'd lay these stalks down on the ground. And they would be followed right behind them by hired women workers, these women employees who would then come and gather these bundles, bundle them up, and then set them down and, and to be gathered and brought towards what was called the threshing floor. And that's where you separated the grain. And, and we're able to get, you know, the barley and the wheat and all that kind of stuff to make bread and other foods. So that, that's what's going on here. So men would come through, they'd cut the grain down, they'd lay them on the ground, the women would come through, they'd bundle them up and it'd all be carried to the threshing floor. And then after these men and women workers were done, that's when these, these gleaners would come through and gather what was rest, well, gather what was left over. That's what it means to glean. And, and God set this aside in his law. This was a law of God to allow gleaners to come through and get what was left over. This is what we read about in God's law. This is Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22 says this. 
when you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, do not go over the branches again. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this. So this whole idea of gleaning, of, of getting what was left over, was designated by God. He commanded landowners like Boaz to leave certain parts of the field, right? The edges, the edges and the corners were the practice here. So they were supposed to leave the edges and the corners untouched. Don't harvest that part. And then whatever you, when, when you pass through the land, when you, when you go through the field and you harvest, like stuff's going to get missed, right? You're not going to get every single stalk. So what God was saying was, don't go back a second time and get what you forgot and what you left behind. That's for the gleaners. That's for the gleaners. And who are the gleaners? Who do we learn who the gleaners are in these two passages? Three groups of people, the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, and the resident alien. Other translations might say sojourner, modern day terminology, a foreign immigrant. That's who that is. Those are the three groups. And those three groups were the bottom rung of society in ancient Israel. These were people that had no rights, that had nobody looking out for them, that were easily taken advantage of and oppressed, that were, that were poor and could not provide for themselves. So God's gleaning laws here allowed for those at the bottom of society who could not provide for themselves to be provided for. That was the point of the gleaning laws. This is how God called his people to help provide for those who were unable to provide for themselves. Biblical scholars, I've seen this in a few different places, refer to this as, as God's ancient welfare system. That's essentially what this was. It was God's systematic way of teaching his people, hey, there's people in your society that are not taken care of, that are not provided for. And this is how we're going to provide for them. This is how we're going to help them. So this is what the gleaning laws were. Now it's important to note before we move on here that, that it was also a little bit of a humiliating thing. Like it was obvious who the gleaners were. Because again, they, they were coming through after everything was done. They, they were to come through at that point. They were getting the edges. They were getting the corners. It was obvious who it was. And this is something that, again, only the bottom rung of society was doing. So remember who Naomi is. Naomi comes from Bethlehem. We're going to find out later that she had, her husband had land in Bethlehem. We also learned early on that she was from this group in Bethlehem that had some kind of standing and stature within the society. So when Naomi leaves Bethlehem, she's leaving behind wealth and stature in the community. And now she's coming back a widow at the bottom rung of society and poor and lone. And now for her to go out and glean in the fields of people that she knows, that she grew up around. I mean, that had to just be humiliating for her. So I think that's another reason why Ruth asked her and she's just like, yeah, whatever, just go. I'm not, I can't do that. I can't do it. But Ruth's like, look, we got to eat. So let's, I'm, I'm doing this. I don't care what it takes. We are going to eat. So she goes out to glean. Um, so that's what's going on there with that verse. And then verse three, what does it say about verse three? Where does Ruth just, just happen? This is what the, the author says. She happened she happened to end up in Boaz's field, right? This guy that we just got introduced to in verse one, this relative, which that part, we're gonna find out next week how, how significant and important it is that he is a relative of Naomi's husband. So he's this relative, he's a prominent man, he's a man of character and integrity and a godly man. And she just, she just happens 
to end up in that field? The, the way that that could be translated in modern terminology is just by chance, by luck, she ends up in Boaz's field. Well, what the author here is doing is doing a little bit of, of irony here to draw our attention. Like things don't just happen. There's no such thing as, as just luck and things happening by chance. No, it is by the hand of God that she ends up in Boaz's field. And again, we're going to see that this moment, just, just the Lord leading her into Boaz's field, that alone is going to change Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's life forever. It's going to change the nation of Israel forever, all because of this. She just happened to end up in Boaz's field, right? No, this is the Lord at work. He's guiding her. All right, so well, we've only gone through three verses. This is going to be, you, got, you guys get comfortable, all right? Verse four. Verse four, later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvest, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little while in the shelter. All right, so they're at work, they're harvesting and Boaz comes and he's like, man, who, who is that over there? And I think sometimes this is presented, and, and maybe it is a little bit, where it's like, oh, who, who's that over there? Hey, girl, what you doing? Where are you at? Like, I think sometimes it's presented as Boaz kind of going like, oh, who's this person? I'm interested. Let me, let me, can you guys introduce me to that person over there? But I think it's probably more like, hey, who's this random person in my field? Like, what's going on with this lady? Who is she? What's going on there? Not that he's like, get her out of here, but he's like, just, hey, there's some rando in my field. Like, I got to figure out what's going on here. So the, the, the worker's like, oh, this is, this is Naomi's daughter-in-law. This is Ruth who came from Moab. That's who that is. And she's been working nonstop. She's been working nonstop, which is, just shows how Ruth is just following through with her commitment to be with Naomi and care for her and help Naomi out. Man, she is dedicated and she's not gonna let this, this grueling work of harvesting and gleaning and the humiliating aspect of gleaning get in the way of her trying to help Naomi out. So Ruth is just, she's awesome. She's incredible. So let's keep going here. Verse eight, verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down and bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me? Although I am a foreigner. Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you previously didn't know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. May you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant although I'm not like one of your female servants. So this is Boaz and Ruth's first conversation, first of many conversations that we're gonna see. And we're gonna, we're gonna dig into this conversation more. So I'll save my thoughts for this as we continue walking through this. So what, what, can, we, what can we learn from this passage? What is this, this passage of this, this meeting of Ruth and Boaz in a field in Bethlehem and ancient gleaning laws? Like what can, we, what can we draw from this passage for us today? Well, I think there's three things that are highlighted for us in this passage. We're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about. Three things that are highlighted, Boaz's character, Ruth's faith, and God's favor. Boaz's character, Ruth's faith, and God's 
favor. So number one here, if you're taking notes, but number one, Boaz's character. Remember what we said about Boaz? He was a man of noble character and he demonstrates for us why the author calls him that even in these short few verses. So four ways that, that Boaz demonstrates his character in this passage. The first way, the way he greets and treats his workers. The way he greets and treats his workers. Look again at verse four. It says, later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. This, this even just this simple greeting is teaching us a lot how Bo, about who Boaz is. What we're going to also learn from the rest of this chapter is that Boaz treats his employees, his hired hands here, very kindly and with a lot of respect. And that just shows, again, what his character's like. Boaz most likely is a man who is prominent, like it says. He probably has standing in the society. He probably is a leader in the community. He's probably very wealthy, well-known. And here he is treating his, his hired hands, his employees with respect and kindness and generosity. This teaches us, man, when we have authority or power over somebody in society and, and how we treat those under us or, or how we treat those who might be in a different place in society, I mean, that tells us a lot about who we are. That tells us a lot about who Boaz is, the kindness that he treats his workers with. And even in this simple greeting, it also tells us another thing about Boaz is that, that he acknowledges the Lord is present in their working. The Lord is present here in this field and in their work. It's the same for us. It's the same for us. No matter what you do for a living, no matter what your work is, the Lord is with you in that. I think too often we, as believers, we, we separate the secular from the sacred. We're like, okay, well, yeah, my job is this. I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm an electrician, I, I am in sales or I own a company or whatever it is. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Whatever you do for a living, it's like, man, that's, that's, that's just work. Like that's just you know, work. And then over here, where I do for church, where I come to church and I serve and I go to small group, like that's where Jesus is. Like that's work, whatever. And Jesus is over here and this stuff. And he cares more about this. And that, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. God is, is very much with you in your work, the way he's created you and designed you and the skills that he's given you and the abilities to do whatever it is that you are doing, whatever it is that you're called to, man, that the Lord is just as present in that as he is with you here at service or serving in kids ministry or making coffee on a Sunday morning or sitting in small group or leading a discussion for a Bible study. God is just as much present in those moments as he is with you at your job. So there's not this separation between secular and sacred in God's eyes. It's, it's all together because he's all with us. And what this teaches us about who we are to be as believers is that when we work, ultimately we work for the Lord. And the way we work and how we behave at work, how we interact with others at work should be in a way that honors the Lord. Colossians 3.17 teaches us this. It says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever, anything and everything, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the father through him. So what this teaches us is, is when we work, sure, you may have a boss and somebody that you report to, but who we ultimately report to, who our ultimate bosses is Jesus. We work for him. So the way we work that we should honor the Lord, when we should have integrity and honesty in the way we work, how we treat people, you know, how you treat your boss, how you treat, if you are a boss or a manager, how you treat people under you, how you treat the, those on the same level, your, your fellow coworkers, how we treat people should honor the Lord. Everything that we do, 
We do it for Jesus. We do it for the Lord. Boaz teaches us that here. And just that simple greeting shows us, man, he knows that Jesus, that the Lord God is, is with them in their work. And it's the same for us today. Second way he shows us his character is that he follows God's laws, he follows God's laws. We see here that, that Boaz allows gleaners in his field. That, that's a law from God, a command from God, and Boaz is following that. So clearly there had to be some, you know, word got spread somehow that Boaz was a guy who did allow gleaners. And that, that's how, uh, one of the ways that, that Ruth ended up in that field, right? Boaz doesn't come and he's like, hey, who's, who's this person? I'm like, oh yeah, it's, the, it's, it's Ruth, the Moabite. She's an immigrant and, and a foreigner here. And she was gleaning. And he could have been like, man, get her out of here. Get her out of here. I don't want her in my field. Get her out of here. No, tell her, get lost. But he doesn't. Boaz clearly allows gleaners, and, and that may seem insignificant, but again, remember what time period we're in. We are in the time of the judges. What we said in our first week in Ruth, man, the time of the judges means utter chaos. Everybody just doing whatever they want to do. If y'all read the book of Judges, the book of Judges is crazy, y'all. People are off their rocker in the book of Judges. They're, doing, they're just crazy and wild and running all over the place, doing whatever they want. The end of Judges tells us that during this time, everybody did whatever they wanted to do. Whatever they thought was right, that's what they did. And what we see in the book of Judges is, is a lot of people that are called to follow God, not following God. So Boaz, as a man who is following God's laws, stands out in this time. And it's a big deal. He didn't have to allow gleaners. I mean, he could have just disobeyed God's law like everybody else was doing in this time but he honored God's laws. A third way that he shows us his character is he goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. He goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. So Boaz doesn't just follow what the law says. He gets to what the law means. He gets to what the law means. So here's, here's what I mean by that. The, the letter of the law here for, for gleaners was, was let them glean, right? Let people come in and glean. Give them the edges, give them the corners, give them what's left over, let them glean. That's what the letter of the law says, but, but what's the point of that? Why did God give that law to begin with? What's the motive? What's the heart? What's the spirit behind that law? Is it just to, to let them glean? No, I think it goes deeper than that. It's more than just let them glean. The letter of the law is let them glean. The spirit of the law is feed them, provide for them, provide for those who can't provide for themselves. Take care of the most vulnerable in your society. That's why the gleaning laws are there. That's the spirit of the law. That's the spirit of the law. God is calling his people to generosity and to care for those that they would otherwise ignore and pass over and leave behind. But God says, no, 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 no. That's not my heart. That's not what I want to see. Take care of them. And this is, this is the truth with, with all of God's laws. So we have to look beyond just what the law says to what the law means. And what we see when we study God's law in the Old Testament is we see God's heart displayed throughout all the laws. This is why it's important to study God's laws. This is why, you know, I think so often we, we look at the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, which is just full of God's laws. And we're like, Pfft. Man, I don't live in ancient Israel anymore. I'm not an Israelite. Why I got I don't have to follow these laws anymore, right? Didn't Jesus said I came to, to fulfill the law, right? Like, so Jesus fulfilled it. I don't have to follow the law. So what's the point in even reading the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy? It's just laws. I don't have to follow those. But what, what matters and what's important is we see God's heart displayed in these laws. We see God's character and how he wants us to love him and honor him and live for him and how he wants us to treat one another. 
So God's laws are, are really important. Lord willing, at some point, we'll preach the book of, book of Leviticus. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books, but it's just awesome. Like, it's just amazing. So anyways, we'll, we'll get there at some point. So we have to get to the heart of God's law. And isn't this what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is like, you have heard it said this, but, but I tell you this, right? You have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't even have hate in your heart. Because that, that's the motive behind the law of, of don't murder. Like Jesus is saying, don't let your heart get so filled with anger and hate that you go and kill somebody. It's not just enough to not kill somebody. Jesus is saying, what, what matters is your heart. How's your heart? That's what we're, we're getting at here with Boaz. That's what we're getting here with how God wants us to live for him. We have to get beyond just what he says to, to what, what's the heart, what's the motive behind what God's calling us to do. That's the same with, with my kids, right? My kids, like I, I, we give them rules as parents to hopefully they, they obey, sometimes better than others. But it's not, I don't just want you to just listen to what I say. Like I, I want your, your heart in the right place, right? Like, so when, when my kids are, are mean to each other, I tell, hey, we're not, we're not mean to our brother and sister, right? We tr- we're nice to our brother and sister. Do I want them to be nice? Yes. But more importantly, I want them to have a heart filled of, with love towards their siblings so that they don't even consider being mean to them. Like, that's what I really want. Like, I don't just ask them to do certain things so that I get them to follow these random rules that we have in our house. No, I, I want them to follow what I'm asking, but, but more important, I, I want them to do what is right because they want to do what is right. That's what matters more. It's the same with God. He wants us to follow him, but not just out of rote obedience, just, okay, Lord, whatever, yeah, I'll go do it. No, he cares about our heart. He cares about where our heart is. Here's what Bible scholar Carolyn Custis James says about Boaz and the gleaning laws here. She says, God's law creates a healthy conflict of interest for Boaz. At harvest time, God meant for landowners like Boaz to wrestle with such basic questions as how big is a corner? How wide is an edge? How thoroughly do I want my workers to clear my fields of grain, given the fact that we only have one chance to clear it? How much will I leave behind for the poor? Walking with God takes us into a sea of possibilities that stretch our capacity for sacrifice and our imagination for obedience, reminding us there's always more to following God than we think. This is what God cares about. If you remember what we just read about the gleaning laws, God doesn't say how much of an edge is, right? He doesn't say, well, an edge is X amount of feet. So man, some landowners, if you were real stingy, man, you get like right up to the edge. Like, oh, there's this little tiny few inches, one little line of stalks. There's the edge. That's an edge. I, I fulfilled the law, Lord. I followed the law. Is that really what he wants though? Is that really what God's getting at? No, again, he wants us to see this as an opportunity to be generous, to help provide for people. That's what God's getting at. That's what he wants from us. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. That's what matters here. All right, the last way we see Boaz's character is in the way that he treats Ruth. The way he treats Remember, Ruth is at the bottom rung of society. She's a widow and she's a foreigner. She's an immigrant in this context from a foreign nation that, that's an enemy of Israel, right? Like it's not even their, their friendly nations. They're not at all. He has no reason, no incentive to be as kind and as nice to her as he is. But this again shows us who Boaz is. Look at what he says to her in verses eight and nine. This is how Boaz is treating her. Look what he says. Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field. Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. 
I mean, look what he's doing here. He's like, look, you don't need to go to any other field. I got you. You can stay here and, and I will make sure that you are provided for. And again, we can look at this as some like ancient pickup on like, girl, you don't need to go anywhere else. I got you. I got you. Look at, look at this grain. Look how much grain I got. You want some grain? I got you. Get some grain. I mean, it's, it's showing his heart and how much he, he cares for others, how much he loves God and loves other people. So he's saying, look, you don't need to go anywhere else. You stay here. You stay close to my female servants. Again, that, that, that was radical because she was supposed to come in after everybody was done. He's like, no, 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 just stay right here. Stay right here. And I'll make sure you have enough. I'll make sure you have enough. And he even says, go and get water from the water that my young men have drew, which seems like, an, again, an insignificant moment. But what would happen in this society is a gleaner, a foreigner like Ruth would not be allowed to go and get the water. So what would happen is they had this big community well. And in the early mornings before the harvest, the young men would go and they'd fill up the water jugs and they'd bring them out to the field. And the, the hired workers could get water from that. But the, the gleaners, the foreigners, no, you can't be touching our water. No, you go back into town, you find somewhere else to get water from. Boaz is saying, no, you don't got to go anywhere else. You stay here. You can have the water from here. Like he's just so radical in how he's protecting and providing for us. Hey, look, the young man, nobody's going to mess with you. You stay in my field, nobody's going to mess with you. He's protecting her. He's protecting her. And then he even prays for her, right? And in verse 12, he prays this blessing that that God would give her favor and reward her. And in all these things, he's praying blessing over Ruth. And I love how Ruth Ruth responds. She just responds with like, man, why are you, why? Like she's just overcome with gratitude for how Boaz is treating her, right? All right, so that, that's Boaz. We, we learn from Boaz's character. The second thing we learn here, the second thing is spotlighted for us is, is Ruth's faith, Ruth's faith. So Ruth has already taken a massive step of faith in chapter one. She's already taken this massive step of faith to leave behind everything she knew, leave behind her homeland, her people, her parents, everything to follow Naomi and come to Bethlehem. And if you remember from chapter one, Naomi was like, look, if you follow me, your life is over. You will continue in poverty and widowhood forever. Don't come with me, stay home. And was like, no, I'm done with that life. I'm following you, following your people, and I'm following your God. So she takes this massive step of faith, already committing herself to follow God. And now here in chapter two, she puts this faith into action. She puts it into action by, by going out to glean. Gleaning was dangerous. Again, she's at the bottom rung of society. As a widow and a foreigner, she has no rights in ancient Israel. No rights. That's why she says, man, hopefully I can find somebody that will give me favor. Hopefully I can find somebody that will allow me to do this because Ruth could have just been easily taken advantage of. She could have been hurt, harmed in some way. She could have been raped in some way. Like she could have been like a whole bunch of dangers were right there for Ruth and any other gleaner that was like her. Because again, somebody takes advantage of Ruth. Like she's got no social recourse. She's got no ability to like, hey, you know, go arrest this guy. He did this and they'd be like, no, I didn't. She's a liar. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. Who cares what she says? And that would have been the end of it. So it's dangerous for Ruth to even go out and do this. And then it's even like gleaning is, is not something where you're like, you're going to come home with just a bunch of stuff and be like, woohoo, we hit the jackpot. We can eat for, for weeks off of this. No, you're scrounging by. Hopefully you're getting enough to feed yourself. And for her to have to go out and find enough food and glean enough food for her and Naomi, that wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. She's taking a big risk here. But that shows us just how much faith she has in God. Her trust is completely in the Lord. She knows that I'm going to step out and God's going to provide. I'm going to step out and he's going to bring me to a field that, that I do find favor, that somebody does provide. She has her faith in the Lord. And this is what Ruth's faith teaches us. One, it teaches us that, that faith in God demands action. 
Faith in God demands action. This is what James chapter two says. James chapter two, verses 14 through 17 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. So what James is telling us here is if your faith in Jesus does not spill out into the way you live your life and how you treat other people, well, then I'm going to seriously question if you even have faith in Jesus. I'm going to seriously doubt if you even, you call yourself a Christian, but man, your life doesn't match up. You're not following Jesus at all. Your life doesn't look anything like what the Bible says. Then I'm going to start to wonder, man, are you, do, you, do, you really, do you really have faith in Jesus? Faith demands action. And this is how we demonstrate our faith, right? In anything. If we truly have faith in something, we will act on it. We will put that into action. It's easy to just sit back and go, oh yeah, I believe that'll happen. And then not do anything about it. But that's not really faith. Acting on our faith, demonstrating our faith with how we live shows us, shows others that we really actually believe and trust and have faith in Jesus. I saw this video uh, this past week where I don't know if you guys have been on one of those like high ropes obstacle courses. You guys ever been on one of those? Well, typically, you know, you have this like uh, attachment to the back and it like hooks on and there's this like, you know, rope or whatever up ahead. Like, I hate these things. I hate heights. And like, just even thinking about it just kind of makes me already start shaking a little bit. Like I just, I hate it. All right. I don't like it. I don't like being on those things. But anyways, there's this video of this guy and he's attached to the back and he's got this rope attached up here. So he's like hooked in and there's these, these like planks, these wood planks that are spaced out. And it's just, like, the video looks like he's pretty high up and he's, he's, so the point is like, you, you walk across the planks, right? And again, you're, you're attached up the top. So if you slip off and you fall, like it'd be terrifying, but you're, you're attached. So you're safe and you're good. So he, he, he steps out and he goes and he's like, he's like running and, and jumping onto these different planks. And the last two, the last two, before he hits that second one, the, the rope comes undone. He doesn't know it. And he just bounces to the next two. And then he looks back and realizes that it came unclipped. Y'all, I would have lost it at that point. <laughs> or if I'm in line to go next and that happens, I'd be like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. I no longer have faith in you being able to keep me alive, right? Like I'd be done at that point. Well, this guy just had complete faith in that harness and was just like bouncing around going and had no idea that he was completely unsafe. But that shows us what faith looks like. When we have faith, we demonstrate it. We show it. See, if we really trust God with our finances, we'll be generous. We'll give. If we really believe that God's ways are best, we'll follow him even when it goes contrary to what we want. If we really believe that God will guide us, then we'll make that decision that he's calling us to make, even though everybody else in our lives is calling us a crazy person. If we really believe that gathering together with the saints on Sunday matters, then we'll be here on Sunday. If we really believe that, that his word changes us, then we'll read the Bible. If we really believe that Jesus saves people with the proclamation of the gospel, then we'll talk to our friend or our neighbor, that person that doesn't know Jesus, we'll talk to them about Jesus because we believe, man, this matters. Our actions, the way we live, demonstrates our faith in Jesus. That's what Ruth shows us here. She also shows us that, that faith requires boldness. Faith requires boldness. Stepping out in faith can be a risk. Man, when God calls you to do something and it doesn't make sense, and all the wise people in your life are like, this doesn't make sense. What are you doing? You're like, I don't know. God called me to do this. I'm just going to do it. Like, that's, that's risky. 
It's risky to be generous. Like, God, you want me to give? You want me to give to that person? You want me to give to the church? Like, well, what about my bills? What about my grocery bill? What a, don't, God, don't you know about inflation? Haven't you heard about the economy right now? Don't you know how much groceries are? And you want me to tithe? You want me to give? You want me to be generous? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is crazy. Faith requires boldness sometimes. You want me to you want me to go talk to that person about Jesus? Like, you want me to go and actually talk about my faith? What if they laugh at me? What if they punch me? What if they never talk to me again? Like, you want me to do that? Yeah, I want you to go do that. Yeah, go do that. That's crazy. I know. Just go do it. Faith requires risk. God does not call us to safety. God does not call us to a life where we never have to risk it for his name. That's not what he calls us to. And Ruth shows us what boldness looks like. Look at her request in verse 7. Verse seven, this is what the worker, the, the, the leader of, uh, of Boaz's harvest here, he says, she asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? Again, that may seem insignificant, but, but remember what the gleaning laws were, that the practice of this time was that the gleaners came in after the work was done. After everybody was done, after everything had been cleared out, that's when the gleaners can come in. And Ruth's like, hey, uh, I know that's what people usually do, but can I just stay right here? And I can, because as soon as you forget something, I'm grabbing that. As soon as you drop something on the ground, boom, that's mine. So this is a bold ask for her. This is a bold ask for her. She's taking a risk and even asking to do this. She's asking for far more than what the law would allow. She's taking a risk. And why is she doing that? Because she knows, man, if I just wait for everybody to be done, I might not get enough. But man, if I can be right there next to the harvesters and as soon as they forget something, boom, I grab that. Well, I can maybe get enough here. So she takes a risk. She takes a risk. God calls us to risk sometimes. But again, this goes back to faith. This goes back to trust. Do we trust God more than anything else? Because if we do, and he calls us to risk, yes, it's scary. Yes, we can struggle with that. Yes, we may doubt at times, but we can ultimately trust that God's ways are always best. Then lastly, Ruth, Ruth teaches us that faith brings humility. Faith brings humility. See, Ruth doesn't expect special treatment. She doesn't come into this with entitlement or pride. Like, don't you know who I am? I'm Naomi's daughter-in-law. Like, okay, don't care. doesn't matter. Like she doesn't come into it with that mindset. No, she humbles herself before God and Boaz. She puts herself in this position where, man, if, if God doesn't come through and provide a landowner that shows me favor, that shows me generosity, man, I, I got nothing else. Lord, I'm fully trusting you. She humbles herself before the Lord. And here's what we learn in scripture about God. God loves humility and hates pride. God loves humility and hates pride. This is what 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says. It says, in the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. This is the attitude that God calls us to have. Humility. Humility before him, humility before others. Too often we live this life of pride and entitlement. And God calls us to the exact opposite of that. And Christians, man, if we struggle with pride, that's not what God wants from us. He calls us to a life of humility. And Ruth demonstrates her humility by, by the gratitude that she expresses to Boaz, right? When, when Boaz shows her this, this favor and this kindness of like, don't go anywhere else. I'll provide everything for you. Stay right here. I mean, she's just overwhelmed with gratitude. And 
living a life of gratitude, being grateful is a sign of humility. Because if we're walking around with a bunch of pride, we're also gonna walk around with a bunch of entitlement and just expect other people to do anything that we want and make it all about us and anything that I, I like and I do, like it's all about me, right? But when I show gratitude, it's a demonstration of our humility. I see this with my kids all the time, right? Like it's why I, I, we talk to them about not complaining and reminding them, man, look, look how blessed we are. Look, look at all these things that God has provided for us. Look, look how much we should be grateful for God instead of going, well, what about that? What about that person? How come I don't have that? How come I can't do this? How come I, like we just, we're so bent towards complaining and entitlement and like, well, what about these other things? Yeah, yeah, sure, God, thank, thanks for that. But what about this? Yeah, sure, God, yeah, I see you blessing me over here, but, but, but you've blessed that person more. So why can't you do that for me? It's like, well, what about this? Oh, yeah, that's fine. What about this other stuff? And we should get so focused on that instead of expressing gratitude for how God has blessed us. We are to live a life of gratitude and humility. And Ruth teaches us that. And the last thing, and we'll end here, the last thing that we see is God's favor. God's favor. See, Ruth expresses gratitude to Boaz for showing her favor. That word favor is the Old Testament word for grace. For grace. He gives Ruth grace. And what's grace? grace? Grace is being given something that we don't deserve and haven't earned. Something that, being given something that we don't deserve and haven't earned. So Ruth didn't do anything to earn Boaz's favor. Right? Again, she's a gleaner. She's an immigrant. She's a widow. She has no rights, no standing in society. And yet, Boaz shows her favor. He shows her grace. She didn't earn it. She didn't do anything to deserve it. And in this way, Boaz points us to Jesus. Boaz points us to the one who gives us favor and grace. It is through Jesus that God richly pours out his grace in our lives. So God's grace, we learn about God's grace in scripture is that God's grace is generously given to us. These gleaners in the Old Testament, they were just hoping to scrape by. They were hoping to just get enough to survive. Like, just give me a little bit. Just let me get enough to make it through the next day. That's not a picture of God's grace. God doesn't give us just enough to survive. He doesn't just give us a little bit to get us through this. No, he richly and generously pours out his grace on our lives. That's God. He blesses us beyond our imagination. Another thing scripture teaches us about God's grace is that it can't be earned. Can't be earned. Ruth says to Boaz in, in verse 10, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me? Boaz noticed her. He saw her. Again, in a society that would ignore and shut out Ruth as a widow and an immigrant, would just look right past her, completely ignore her, think nothing about her. Boaz notices her. He sees her, pays attention to her, and he gives her favor. That's what God does for us, y'all. That's what God does for us. Think about that for a moment. God takes notice of you. God sees you. He sees you for who you really are. Man, and there are very few people in our lives, if anybody, who truly knows us. For some of us, that might be a terrifying thought, like, oh, God really knows everything about me. Yeah, he knows everything about you. Those things that you've done, that you try to hide from everybody, those thoughts that you have, that you have tried to hide from everybody else. Yeah, he sees, he, sees, he sees all of that. He sees all of that. And here's how God responds. 
He sees all of that and he loves you. He loves you and he pours out his grace in your life. He sees everything about us and still says, man, I love you so much that I died for you. That's how our God treats us. That's God's grace. Another thing about God's grace is, is God's grace leads us to his will, right? Ruth just, just happened to end up in Boaz's field, right? No, that's God's grace leading her to this exact moment. I'm telling you, what we're going to see in the rest of Ruth is this moment, this meeting between Ruth and Boaz is going to change their lives and the entire nation of Israel forever. It's going to change our lives forever. This moment right here is significant. So it's not just that she just happened to end up in Boaz's field. No, God brought her to that field. It was God's grace leading her. And just like us, all those just so happened tos, that's God's grace leading us. All those moments that we look back and I'm like, man, that changed my life forever. That's God's grace. It is his grace that he leads us to his will every moment of every day. Lastly, we see that God's grace is our full reward. Boaz prays for Ruth's full rewards. What he says in verse 12, may the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. God's grace is our full reward. His reward, God's reward of his grace is far more than any blessing or benefit that we could have in this life. It's far more significant than that. It's far bigger than that. See, in God's grace, his, his reward is our full and complete forgiveness. When we put our faith in Jesus, past, present, future sins, all forgiven by Jesus. We are completely clean and holy and righteous before him and it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us redemption. He brings salvation to our lives. He gives us hope. He gives us full and everlasting life. That is God's grace. That is God's reward. That is God's favor into our lives. And how do we step into that? How do we step into the fields of favor like like Ruth does here? Well, again, look at verse 12. What does Boaz say? It says that Ruth is under the wings of the Lord. She has come to the Lord for refuge. Under whose wings you have come for refuge. To step into God's grace, to enter God's grace, to step into his full reward, that's all that's asked of us. That's all that's asked of us is just to turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Believer in the room, if you're here, man, and you realize, man, I've strayed. I've gone away from God's ways. I've, I've turned my back on him. I've chased the things of this world. What's God's message to you? Come back home. Come back under his wings of refuge. Come back to him. God's arms are always open to us. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, You've never, man, you've never thought about following the Lord and, and, and doing that. And then yet somehow you're here and you're listening to this. You're like, God's favor, grace, forgiveness. What, what is that? Like, how, how, how do I, how do, what does that mean? What, what, what do I do to get that? You turn to Jesus. You turn to him in faith. You say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you 
for my forgiveness. I'm going to trust you for salvation. I'm going to live for you and no longer myself anymore. That's all it is. It's just turning to Jesus. It's just coming to him for refuge, for safety, for reward, for blessing, for forgiveness, for salvation. Turn to Jesus. His grace never runs out. We're never going to get to the point where it's like, okay, Travis, you've run out of second chances. Sorry, no more grace for you. I've turned off the grace. That's not what God does. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's who our God is. That's who Jesus is. Turn to him. Let me pray for us. And as we pray, we're going to step into this time of worship and communion like we do every week. So if you're, if you're newer to Haynes Creek, here's what we do every single Sunday. We always end with the time of worship and communion. And this time of communion is for believers only. It's for those people who have turned to the Lord in faith and forgiveness. So if you are here and you claim the name of Jesus, you have put your faith in Jesus. This time is for you. So believer in the room, I want to encourage you like we do every week, just spend some time in prayer and in worship to the Lord. Maybe this week you've been reminded of God's grace and favor in your life. Maybe you've been reminded of how he calls you to follow him and walk with him. Maybe he's shown you and reminded you what faith and obedience really looks like. So maybe you need to spend some time just in repentance and, and, and that, that idea that we talk about, just turning back to the Lord. So whatever it is, wherever you're at, take some time to prepare your hearts. And then as you're ready, believer, we go to the table on either side of the room. We take we eat, we drink, and we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We eat, we drink, and we worship our good God and Savior. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, but you're ready to, you want to learn more about what that means or talk to somebody about that, I just want, I'll be hanging out in the back. I'd love to talk with you today. Don't leave today without about talking to somebody about that. If that's you, if the Lord is pulling you, if the Lord is calling you and, and, and leading you to turn to him, respond. Let today be the day of your salvation. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, Lord, that you are a God full of favor and grace. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to earn our way. Lord, that it's not about how good we can be in this life. It's not about can our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Lord, we don't have to earn your favor. All we have to do is turn to you. Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you for the grace and the mercy and salvation and forgiveness and hope and blessing and, and the life that you richly pour out on us, Lord. Lord, forgive us when we go through life and we forget all that you've done for us, Lord. We act as if this is all about us. This is all about me. Look at what I have done, Lord, and we leave you out. Forgive us when we do that. Forgive us when we lead a life of, of pride and entitlement, Lord. Would you humble us? Would you lead us back to your grace and your favor? Would you lead us towards deeper faith and obedience to you, Jesus? So we thank you for all that you've done for us, for all that you are, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your favor. In your name we pray. Amen.